1959, the head programmer at CBS TV, a guy named Oscar Katz, received a letter from a student at Ohio State University named Fred Silverman. Silverman was writing his master's thesis, which analyzed programming trends on ABC TV from 1953 to the present, and Silverman cheekily offered his services to Katz if he needed any help with programming the CBS schedule. Katz got a kick out of the offer and invited Silverman to keep in touch. Eventually, Fred Silverman's thesis, all 406 double-spaced typewritten pages, made its way into the hands of CBS executives, as did another analysis of CBS programming. And in 1963, after stints at WGN in Chicago and WPIX in New York City, Fred Silverman joined CBS as director of daytime programming. He was 25. Over the next 20 years, Silverman would set a record. At one time or another, he would be in charge of primetime programming for all three major broadcast networks. If you were watching TV any time between the 1970s and early 1980s, then your choices were heavily influenced by his choices. For better or worse, Fred Silverman was the man behind much of TV we watched at that time. And because his instincts on what made a hit show were so spot on, he became known as the man with the golden gut, until he took on his most difficult challenge, programming against himself. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. In 1948, Fred Silverman's father, William, brought a build-it-yourself TV kit to their house in Queens. He put together the machine with a 7-inch screen, and then he made a decision. After a career of selling radios for Sears, he became a TV repairman. At that time, Fred Silverman was 11. He'd grown up listening to the radio, and the most popular shows of the day included Jack Benny, The Shadow, Gangbusters, Fever McGee and Molly, Lux Radio Theater. Now Silverman would be introduced to new shows on a new medium, TV. Silverman loved that new medium and the possibilities it symbolized. He was also fascinated by the science of TV programming and scheduling. He majored in radio and TV at Syracuse University and then went to Ohio State for his master's. Silverman's first job out of college was for WGN in Chicago, arguably America's best-known independent station. WGN wasn't affiliated with any major network, so it had to scramble to make its schedule of sporting events and reruns seem equal to programming from the big-time TV networks. Silverman understood that. One of the first things he did at WGN was repackage old movies as a weekly series called Family Classics. He brought in a host to class things up, and the show sometimes beat its network competition. He did the same thing by programming Tarzan movies in prime time, and then heavily promoting them. In 1963, Silverman moved to New York City for a short stint 
at independent station WPIX-TV, and then came the CBS job as the network's head of daytime programming. At that time, CBS's daytime schedule was soaps in the afternoon and a block of sitcom reruns in the morning, shows like I Love Lucy, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Dick Van Dyke Show. NBC, by contrast, offered game shows like Concentration in the mornings, and what's more, they were all broadcast in color, as were the network's afternoon soaps. NBC was the daytime leader, for the time being at least. Silverman began phasing out daily sitcom reruns in favor of glitzy new game shows like The Joker's Wild, Gambit, and The New Price is Right. He also revamped Saturday mornings with shows like Scooby-Doo and the CBS Children's Film Festival, which won a Peabody Award. By the late 1960s, CBS was number one in daytime. In 1970, Silverman's superior at CBS, Mike Dan, left to take a position with the Children's Television Workshop, producer of Sesame Street, and Silverman was promoted to CBS's chief programmer. It was his senior thesis all over again, but this time he had a real-life network schedule to play with. This, of course, was at a time when network television was at the height of its power as a mass communication medium. Every evening, when most of America turned on their TV sets, they had only three channels to choose from, the major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. For most of the 1950s and 60s, CBS dominated. It came to be known as the Tiffany Network. Its glory decade was the 1960s, when CBS often claimed nine of the top ten shows in the country. The head programmer at that time, James Aubrey, seemed to come up with hit after hit, from the Beverly Hillbillies to the Andy Griffith Show, to the Dick Van Dyke Show, to the Lucy Show. Aubrey had ethics issues, however, which we deal with in our podcast about Keith Brazell, and he was gone by 1965, succeeded by Mike Dan. During Mike Dan's tenure at CBS, his objective was the same as any other network programmer of the time. Put shows on the schedule that would draw the largest possible audience, period. But by the late 1960s, that measure of success was beginning to be challenged. More and more, advertising agencies were buying commercial time on TV shows based on demographics. Advances in data analysis allowed rating services to segment the audience by age, income, and locality, and this analysis found that the most desirable viewers, the ones who spent the most money, were young, wealthy, and urban. A show's overall rating didn't matter as much as the, quote, quality, unquote, of the audience that was tuning in, and advertisers would pay big money to reach that desired audience. CBS had dominated the 1960s with shows that attracted large audiences, like the ones we just mentioned, but they were often more popular with viewers who were older, rural, and poorer, less likely to spend money on big-ticket products advertised on TV. So Silverman began cleaning house. In the spring of 1971, in what would become known as the Rural Purge, which is a hard phrase to say, he canceled Ed Sullivan, Red Skelton, The Hillbillies, Hee Haw, Mayberry RFD, Green Acres, The Jim Neighbors Hour, and Family Affair, 
many of which were still relatively successful in the ratings, but which attracted lower, less affluent audiences. And to be honest, the sign that times were definitely changing had actually come a couple of months earlier when All in the Family premiered as a mid-season replacement on CBS. Here's Fred Silverman. Well, the first thing that happened was something that we had very little to do with. It was a show called All in the Family, which was developed uh, at ABC, and they didn't know what to do with it. You know, they had just, they just had a fiasco uh, called Turn On that George Slaughter produced that lasted one week. You know, that was just the biggest embarrassment, the most tasteless show you've ever seen. And uh, on the basis of that, they did all in the family. The guy, they had a program, he almost got fired. He said, absolutely not. We don't want to have anything to do with it. So Norman Lear and his agent, Sam Cohn, came over to see Bob Wood. And at that point in time, Mike Dan was still there. And I was in the meeting. And, uh, and we saw all in the family. And I, you know, I couldn't believe I was seeing what I was seeing. You know, because this thing was compared to the crap that we were canceling. I mean, this, this was really uh, setting new boundaries. And to Bob Wood's credit, he said, I love this show. we got to put this on the air. This is good for television. It's good for the nation. It's, uh, and he had a major, major fight with Paley, who hated the show. But he prevailed, and, uh, and they kind of snuck it on the air in January. It's January after I had gotten the job, and they... Uh, they put it on Tuesday night at 9.30. And the lead-in, to show you what a lousy time period, they gave it, the, the lead-in was Hee Haw. And the show at 10 o'clock was the CBS News Hour. So in terms of scheduling, you couldn't find a worse time period in the schedule you now to put this thing. And, uh, and everybody was concerned that they were going to, you know, we were gonna, it was going to be another ooby-dooby, you know, where there would be hundreds of thousands of calls coming in. I was there that night. I went, just out of curiosity, went to the switchboard at, uh, I think we were still at 485 then. And uh, I think they got 20 calls in New York, you know, for the, uh, the East Coast and Central uh, feeds. 20 calls, which is nothing. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a tempest in a teapot. It opened with moderate ratings. In those days, it was, I think it had a 28 share, which in those days was really marginal. And, uh, you know, and we all said, geez, all this brouhaha for nothing. And what happened is that over the course of uh, the spring, it, people started to talk about the show, and it started very gradually to build, but there was, the word of mouth was enormous, and the Emmys then were, I believe, in May, and it swept the Emmy Awards. It just, it really swept the Emmy Awards, and, uh, and from that point on, started to build uh, in, in, uh, in the summer, in spite of the time period. In the fall of 1971, Silverman moved All in the Family to Saturday Night, near another popular and critical success, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. All in the Family topped the ratings and swept the Emmy Awards, and after another season or so, the CBS Saturday Night lineup was arguably the best on TV. All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and Carol Burnett. Silverman developed hits like The Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour, The Waltons, and Kojak. But he also had his misses, 
including sitcoms like Me and the Chimp and the Chicago Teddy Bears. Still, he demonstrated an uncanny ability to spot and develop talent that TV audiences responded to. He also understood the value of introducing a character on an existing hit show and then spinning that character off into another show. If you've heard our podcast about Maud, you know that Silverman ordered Maud into a series based on B. Arthur's guest appearance as that character on an episode of All in the Family. Then when Maud became a series, Silverman ordered the spinoff of Florida, the maid on Maud, into her own series, Good Times. He then went back to All in the Family and gave their next-door neighbors, the Jeffersons, their own series. And from the Mary Tyler Moore show, of course, he spun off shows for Mary's best friends, Rhoda and Phyllis. Partly as a result of those shows, by the mid-1970s, CBS was in the strongest position it had been since the early 1960s. Silverman was sitting pretty, but he was getting kind of bored and he wanted a new challenge to tackle the schedule on a network that had never, ever been number one. ABC became a TV network in 1948, but aside from a few hit shows like Disneyland and The Untouchables in the 1950s and Batman and Peyton Place in the 1960s, it was usually an also-ran in the ratings. In the mid-1960s, this joke made the rounds. Question, how do you end the Vietnam War? Answer, put it on ABC and it'll be canceled after 13 weeks. Silverman's challenge was to change that. He joined ABC as head programmer in 1975 and almost immediately began pursuing the same strategies that had worked so well for him at CBS, except now he was competing against some of the hit shows on CBS that he'd helped create. One of them was Good Times, the spinoff with Florida, the maid for Maude. Esther Roll and John Amos played Florida and James Evans, who were struggling to raise their family in a Chicago public housing project. The show's most popular character was oldest son, J.J., played by Jimmy Walker, who had an amazingly popular catchphrase. All I can say is it seemed funny at the time. Good Times finished the 1974-75 season in seventh place, running roughshod over another new sitcom on ABC that was in the same time slot called Happy Days. One of the top-grossing movies of 1973 was American Graffiti, a comedy-drama about a group of teenagers set in a small town in 1962. Happy Days was the unofficial TV version of that movie. It even had Ron Howard, the film's lead, as Richie Cunningham, a teenager growing up in Milwaukee in the late 1950s. At first, Happy Days was innocuous and forgettable, it was like a slightly spicier version of Leave it to Beaver. But Fred Silverman saw potential. The first thing he did was to start accentuating the character of Fonzie, a leather-clad motorcyclist, but with a heart of gold, who had his own catchphrase. All I can say is it seemed funny at the time. Thanks to Fonzie, and also because the show switched from a recorded laugh track to being filmed before a noisy, raucous live audience, Happy Days gained in popularity. Then Silverman sat down with the show's producer, Gary Marshall, to get some ideas about a spinoff. 
Marshall pitched the idea of two blue-collar young women who were roommates and worked in a brewery, and he pitched his sister, Penny Marshall, as one of the women. Silverman knew Penny Marshall from her work on CBS shows, and he okayed the idea. Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney were introduced on an episode of Happy Days. A few weeks later, Laverne and Shirley premiered in the time slot right after Happy Days. After its first season on the air, Laverne and Shirley was the number three show. Happy Days was at number 11. Good Times had fallen from 7th to 24th place. That season also saw more innovations on ABC. The premiere of Rich Man, Poor Man was the beginning of the TV miniseries and was a huge ratings hit. Comic strip shows like The Bionic Woman, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Starsky and Hutch were also hits. And soon to come would be Charlie's Angels, Three's Company, Soap, Roots, and Beretta. And at the end of the 1976-77 season, seven of the top ten shows were on ABC, making the network number one for the first time ever. Silverman succeeded at ABC by using the same methods he'd used at CBS. The spin-off series, an emphasis on sitcoms, and endless cross-promotion of shows. He was also credited, rightly or wrongly, for the rise of Jiggle TV, shows featuring brawless young women in skimpy outfits. By now, Fred Silverman was regarded as some sort of miracle worker, but after a few years at ABC, he was ready for a new challenge, and NBC was ready for help, any kind of help. In the fall of 1975, for example, NBC introduced over a dozen new shows, and none of them were renewed for a second season. At the end of the 1975-76 season, NBC had only three shows in the top 30. Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man, and Policewoman. After a couple of more tough years, NBC came calling on Fred Silverman in 1978. And again, he couldn't resist the challenge. But he was also going to be facing his toughest competition, himself, in the form of hit shows on CBS and ABC that Silverman helped put together in the first place. By 1978, ABC especially was a ratings juggernaut, and Silverman's first schedule for NBC featured shows with more than a passing resemblance to hit ABC shows. ABC, for example, had a popular show set in a high school called Welcome Back, Cotter, with comic Gabe Kaplan and young hunk John Travolta. So on NBC, we got The Waverly Wonders with former pro quarterback Joe Namath as a high school teacher. Another hit show on ABC, The Love Boat, was the inspiration behind the NBC show Super Train, a big-budgeted series with lots of guest stars. Following in the wish-fulfillment tradition of ABC's Fantasy Island came sweepstakes about people whose lives are changed by winning millions. And Silverman again turned to producer Gary Marshall, the man behind Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, for a youth-oriented sitcom called Who's Watching the Kids. The results in almost every case were ratings disasters. The incident that demonstrated how far Silverman had fallen was symbolized by a singing duo of two young Japanese women called Pink Lady. Silverman's gut told him that they could be a big hit on American TV and a variety show was built around them, except that they couldn't speak English. 
Now, Silverman's time at NBC wasn't a total loss. There were popular shows on the schedule like Real People and Different Strokes, which spun off the facts of life. There just weren't very many of them. To his credit, however, Silverman also oversaw the development of quality shows that would soon help lead NBC out of the ratings wilderness, like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere. He also grabbed David Letterman with the idea of giving him a talk show. But NBC decided to cut its losses, and Silverman left the network in 1981. But he wasn't done with television. Fred Silverman went into business with Dean Hargrove, and in 1985, they produced a TV movie called Perry Mason Returns, reuniting the cast of the popular series of the 1950s and 60s. Critics scoffed, but Perry Mason Returns was the second highest rated TV movie of the season, and it was the first of 30 Perry Mason movies that continued to be made even after the death of the man who played Perry Mason, Raymond Burr. Silverman knew he was on to something, not trend-setting TV or high-quality TV, but comfort TV, shows with recognizable TV faces playing likable characters in a setting with just enough crime to keep things interesting. So in the fall of 1986, Silverman and company gave us Andy Griffith as country lawyer Ben Matlock. And in the fall of 1987, William Conrad who'd played Private Eye Frank Cannon on Cannon in the 1970s, returned in Jake and the Fat Man. And in 1988, Carol O'Connor, known worldwide as Archie Bunker, returned in In the Heat of the Night. There were even more after that. Tom Bosley, the former dad of Happy Days in Father Dowling Mysteries, Dick Van Dyke in Diagnosis Murder, all of them were co-produced by Silverman, who had found a nice little niche for himself. Most of the shows were pretty successful. Matlock ran longer than the Andy Griffith show, and Diagnosis Murder had a longer run than the Dick Van Dyke show. Silverman's career faded in the mid-1990s, and in the ensuing years, you don't need me to tell you that today we watch TV in a totally different way than ever before. What used to be called the th Big Three TV networks seems smaller than ever and they're fighting a lot of competition. Streaming, on-demand, cable, satellite. It's doubtful that one person could ever dominate television today the way Fred Silverman did for a decade or so. Today, we're all Fred Silverman, programming our own schedules. For better or worse, but it's certainly different. You can stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year, this year. TV is the thing this year. Radio was great. Now it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. Last night I was watching Old Tom Mix. My TV broke. I was in a fix. I got on the phone, called my man, said, get here. As fast as you can, TV. My name's David Inman. Thanks for listening. Oh, See you later. Is the thing this year. Radio was great, but now it's out of date. 
And TV is the thing this year. Now he turned my dial to channel one. I knew that this was gonna be fun. He turned my dial to channel two. That station thrilled me through and through. He moved one notch to channel three. I said, uh, how I love what you're doing to me. He said, uh, wait a minute, let's try channel four. Just about the time someone knocked on the door. TV is the thing this year. Oh, yes, TV is the thing this year. Radio was great, but now it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. The way he eased into Channel 5, that man must have had fluid drive. He moved once more to Channel 6, then he opened up his bag of tricks. On Channel 7, the show was late, but we got our kicks on Channel 8. He turned my dial to Channel 9, said, baby, your set is fine. He moved on up to Channel 10, then we started all over again. He finally hit channel 11. I cried, Mama, he treats your daughter good. TV is the thing this year. Yes, radio was great, but now it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. Baby, my TV set will need fixing just about this time every night.